she disappears into a camera store carrying a shopping bag like this, see? She was right. They weren't shooting at her. And I am laying on the concrete, you know, and I get up like this, and I look at this lady, and there she's, you know, standing there. She looks exactly like Ma Perkins. She buys her little Veracrome 127, and I'm standing watching her through the window. She comes out, and I said, lady, they were shooting at you. She says, no, they weren't, young man. And I go on the air, and I tell the story that night. I said, now, you won't believe this. This is what happened. I'll tell you exactly. And I described it in, in intimate detail, everything. I described her hat, you know. She was the kind of little lady, you know, with the pot on the head, you know, the little hat with the flowers sticking out and little things. And, you know, her hair is permanently sort of steel blue and little rings. And she has a flower dress on, even when she's asleep, you know. You know the kind. She's born with a girdle that goes all the way up to the neck, you know. And... And, and, and I tell the whole story, this nice little lady, and I says, By George, I think it is true that God does protect the drunks and the innocents. You know, anybody else, you know, a guy on, uh, four blocks away would have got that slug in the ear, not her. You see. She's surrounded by goodness or something. So I tell the story on the air, and of course, everybody's watching me in the audience, you know, and they, they've got this dumb look. Well, that's another one of those made-up stories. Well, I'm off the air five minutes, the phone rings, and on the phone is a guy from some place in Philadelphia. He says, Shepherd, that was my mother. <laughs> he says, she told us that story at supper. He says, she saw these men shooting. She says, and there was a young man, and she says, I just told him they're not shooting at me. He says, we thought she was out of her skull. She finally flipped her wig. He says, that was my mother. I said, put her on the phone. And she gets on the phone. I says, Madam, I, I was the guy on the concrete there. I saw that all happen, and, and I'm just so glad you're alive. I'm just glad that they didn't get you. There's a pause. She says, what do you mean? I said, but they didn't get you. I'm glad. She says, they were not shooting at me. <laughs> there is a lesson in that, friends, for all of us. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well... Getting back, getting back since it's the 4th of July now, and we're down here at the limelight where the fireworks, you know, everything is hot and steamy, and the food is good, and the drinks are ready, and the people are sitting out there looking with the cold blue light of learning and truth burning in their eyes. Right, gang? And incidentally, now wait a minute, at ease, you'll have your show after we get off the air. We've got a special thing for you. I know one thing. Whenever I'm up in front of an audience, it's a terrible thing to have to admit, you look down, and you can see the dates that are making it. And you can see the ones that aren't. You can see the bored chicks who wondered how they ever got here with this knothead, you know, this chowderhead they're sitting with. What is this idiot doing up here, you know? And then you can see the guy down there, you know, who's, who's, who's doing the same thing. There's the chick who says, look, I've got to go down there, and he's sitting there with a smile, He's thinking of 1.30. And I can see by just standing back here, 10 feet away, it ain't going to help. He's going to fail. Because each one of us... How many of you have ever had this experience? Boy, it's a terrible one. I, I remember this to my dying day. You know, we most of us just accept life when we're kids and growing up. We don't know that we're tortured. Believe me, it had to take a 45-year-old man, J.D. Salinger, to write Holden Caulfield, Catcher in the Rye. I mean, believe me, 
A 16-year-old kid is just walking. He's walking around, you know. Believe me, they didn't discover Holden Caulfield in, in, uh, in Penn Charter and all the prep schools until they read it. All of a sudden, they discovered their bug, you know. It's as though Salinger created it. Well, I, I believe that as we go along, we, we don't see any of the subtleties of life, people. We accept them totally at, our, at their face value. I mean, tough guys are tough. I mean, big guys are tough. Little guys aren't tough. Mothers are good because they're mothers. Fathers are big and strong because they're fathers. These are the things we all know, we accept. Kids around us are our friends because we're in school with them. They're friendly to us. We just accept it at its face value. It's only later that we begin to run into these little whirlpools. And the first couple of whirlpools you run into, you think, it's, you know, it's just a fluke. What, what, what was this? And you're walking through life and you hit your knee on one of your friends. Say, oh, that was a fluke. Well, let me tell you, every last one of us has had the experience of total incommunication when it first happened. And I, I'll never forget it. I am in high school. I'm about a junior. And I'm, you know, I'm just a kid. I'm a big kid. You wouldn't believe it, but at that time I weighed 205 pounds. I was a short, angry guard on the football team. I hit guys. Yeah, I'd hit guys. They'd hit me. I'd get up. I'd hit them again. They'd hit me. Life was like that. You'd go, to, you'd go up to your chick and say, hey, how about you? You'd like to go to the sock hop with me. And she'd say, yeah. And you'd go and you'd dance. And you'd go around you'd dance. They'd, how about a hamburger? Yeah, dance. Let's have a hamburger. Okay, let's go to the Red Rooster. And you go to the Red Rooster. And you say, all right, let's go home, Dorothy. We'll, and we get home. We kiss on the porch. You know, how about a kiss? She kisses fine. She goes in. That's the end of it. Life is simple. You know, there's no complications. Once in a while, you'd say, how about going to the sock hop? The chick would say, no. It's okay. That's all there was to it. You know, you missed. That's all. You didn't feel rejected. You didn't feel unloved. Okay, all right, that's your hard luck. Okay. <laughs> you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's the way life was up to a certain point, see. And one night after, after you know, I'm, I'm a sophomore. I'm in a biology class, symbolically enough. <laughs> I am in a biology class, and we have this teacher named Miss Crystal Reader. Sounds like I've invented it. It sounds like it's right out of Joseph Heller. I'm sorry. She had a gigantic halo around her head. Her hair stuck out directly from her skull, just like she had a great blue-white cloud that floated around her. She looked like, did you ever see The Bride of Frankenstein? No, I'm serious, because when that picture hit, it was Miss Crystal, we all said, Crystal Reader, Miss Reader. You know, she's making monsters now. Well, well. Crystal Raider, she'd float around, and she had this great big cloud, this nimbus of hair around her. And biology and psychology teachers are alike in one thing. They have encountered something of the infinite. History teachers, they're innocents. Life is composed of actions and battles. Life is composed of dates, theses, theories, economic ideas, plots. It's all abstract. Have you ever looked deep into the eye of a psych teacher? He stands up there, you know, and all he sees down there are individual little tangled masses of wire, Brillo pads, with eyes, you know, and they glow and they have different colors and shapes and forms. 
So he doesn't stand up at the board the same way the guy says, the Battle of Lexington occurred October 7th, 1787. You got it down there? All right, write it down. All right. Now, General Cornwallis, in his communique, that's simple. Miss Reader would stand in front of us, and I, I had the feeling that Miss Reader's whole concept of biology had come out of books and looking in glass cases. And down there in front of her was a pulsating mob of 32 cakes of yeast. I mean, boiling, hissing with glands, steaming, and pimples popping out, you know. It was life down there, see. And Miss Crystal Reader was a tall, thin lady. She had been fighting against real life, obviously, for years, you know. It all, it all was concerned with the Anopheles mosquito and the love life of the nightcrawler. And, and I, she used to get this embarrassed. You know, it was funny how, how you begin to detect these subtleties. We are di dissecting a frog. And Miss Crystal Reader has made a diagram up here. She says, now, children, uh, you'll notice as you look at your frog, which was spread out on the little cork board in front of us with the pins, you know. She says, now, you'll notice here on the left and on the right of the backbone. You see the backbone in there? Now trace the backbone down with your fingers. On the left and on the right, you see the lungs. Now, would you please take your blue dye and dye them blue? She is on safe grounds, you see, at this point. She says, now, if you'll notice just below that, right directly along the backbone, these are the amphibian's kidneys. This is an amphibian creature. It's an air breather. Now, would you please take your dye and dye that purple? And then we began to get into foreign territory. And Miss Reader begins to get sort of pink. And she's got the same tone of voice. And all of us kids are looking down. Look with the pins. With the dye. She says, now, this frog... Would you please take a look at your frog? Now, there are two kinds of frogs. <laughs> well, by that time, you know, the, 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 the temperature has heated up in the room considerably. <laughs> you see, I was making contact with Pearl, who was right next to me and standing over the same frog. You know, it says, yeah, and there's two kinds of kids. <laughs> there's two kinds of kids, right, baby? <laughs> And she looks at me. She had this beautiful olive. She looked like one of these ballerinas. And I was used to the Esther Jane Alberry type. I had just run into this girl. She had just joined me in the class. And you know, up to this point, they're all Esther Jane, you know. I says, there's two kinds of kids, huh, baby? Nothing. There's a kind of frost. We're down there like this. And Miss Reader up there is getting pink. And she says, now, uh, children, the next few organs we're going to discuss have to do with that great process of life called reproduction. <laughs> I says, you know what she means, baby. <laughs> well, Miss Reader, you know, is up there and she's solid now. She's solid pink. Even her hair is turning pink, you know. And, 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 and I'm standing next to Pearl, you know, says, you know what she means, baby. And Pearl is like solid ice. 
Esther Jane, of course, is three or four kids ahead, nudging Joss away. <laughs> you know, that's home territory up there. See, I want to be, hey, Esther, what about that top two kids? Watch her hair turn pink. Pearl is like ice. And we're both dissecting. And she says, now, please take your red and your green dye and if you have a female frog, I want you to use the green. If you have a red frog, that is a male frog, use your red. That's male. Now, here are the two types. And she pulls down the chart. And immediately, boing, you know. Because, you know, you wonder about frogs. Have you ever wondered? Frogs and worms, you know. And you ought to see turtles. I study turtles. Oh, that's a fantastic thing with a shell and all that. Oh, wow. We all have secret wonderings about a lot of things. Camels, uh, anyway. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> terrible what we are. So, so we're, you know, we're all looking there. And, and, and so I say, I, I look down in the frog, see, and I look up at the chart, and I say to Pearl in my Esther Jane voice, it's a chick. <laughs> I'm looking, you know, lasciviously, and the poor little frog is sliced open and pinned down. All of a sudden, I'm a peeping Tom, you know. Look at her. She says, that's a chick. And Pearl says nothing. And we continue to dissect. And then without any warning, Pearl walks up to Miss Reader's desk and bends over and says something. Miss Reader looks down at me and says, Gene, would you please leave Pearl alone? Leave Pearl alone. What have I done? You know, I've just been old funny Jean, you know. I just leave Pearl alone. And Pearl comes back, you know, with that snotty girl look. Comes back. And she says, here, take the needles. And we start working on the things. And that minute, a great love grew. This was completely out of my context. And believe me, we all fall in love with that which does not fall in the neighborhood. We are all secretly in love with that, that strange, exotic thing. This was totally different. And she's standing there next to me, and I'm dissecting, and I'm getting sort of skinnier and taller, and I'm getting a little conscious of my, you know, I had a crew cut that went all the way down to the nose in those days. You know, right down to the nose, went down here, the ears stuck out, and I was round, and I had one of these T-shirts on that said, stolen from the Hammond High Track Department, and I'm standing there. And I begin to look at this girl sideways. And she's, believe me, she's, the, uh, even to this day, the most beautiful creature I ever saw. She was like Margot Fontaine. She was like made out of alabaster, all carved, little tiny ears. She was made out of ivory. She had little, little blue spots here and there, and little pink things. And, and, just, and she radiated. She, she had this perfume. This aura, this aroma. And up ahead, you know, there's Esther Jane, old fat Esther Jane hitting Joshua. <laughs> and I begin to think, what terrible people they are. What awful people. Will you shut up, Esther Jane? You're bothering Pearl. And I'm protecting her. I'm standing next to Pearl. And Pearl is just quietly going away. And she's writing in her notebook. She's one of these girls, you know the kind of girls that write in the notebook with a little tiny backward handwriting. You know the backward handwriting and little whirls, and she makes little round dots for the eye, over the eyes, you know, little circles over the eyes, that kind of thing. So, 
And of course, I'm going with the pencil, you know. That, that. And I'm looking. And all the while, I'm beginning to feel, I'm, be, I'm beginning to feel this sense of change. Believe me, it was the beginning of, of, the, of, the, of the mature hang-up. <laughs> it was the beginning of being bugged. And I don't know how to talk to her now. You know, I failed like, you know, the chick. I can't say that anymore. And I don't want... Pearl, uh, she says, what is it? I said, uh, pass the scalpel, please. And she says, oh, yes. I take the scalpel. I cut a little bit. She watches. I'm becoming very delicate. Like this. I step back. And Crystal Reader is standing up there walking back and forth. You know how teachers do when the lab session is underway? They walk around like this. And she steps over and she takes one look at me. And Crystal Reader had one of these thin skull faces that was very expressive. Have you ever wondered why all actors that play Hamlet are skinny with high cheekbones? That is a sneaky face. A skull says more, believe me, just a skull says more than the face of Oliver Hardy. That great big pair of staring eyes. Just looking at you. Well, she looks down at me and she looks at my notebook and I have begun to write real good. You know, kids really do these things. They begin to try to improve. I'm, I'm writing good. I mean, she looks down, she walks on. She comes back and she says, don't bother Pearl. Don't bother Pearl. Don't bother Pearl. Pearl has got me on the verge of a nervous breakdown in five minutes. Have you ever noticed everyone assumes the girl is always being bothered by the male? Oh, my God. I'm telling you, have you how many of you guys in your wash and wear shirts and your wash and wear Dacron suits walking up Fifth Avenue? all dressed up, you know, in your light blue suits, looking crisp and clean, and this great wave of chicks is coming at you one after the other, billowing and moving and the wind blowing them. And you, you get this face. I wonder how many women know what it's like to walk up Fifth Avenue in the face of a summer crowd. And especially the 15 and the 16-year-old, there's something about them. I don't know what it is. Oh, wow, it's like a tidal wave is sneaking up. And you sort of walk along, and you look in the window at Wallach's. You're looking at straw hats. You can't stand straw hats. You're looking very serious, you know. You walk back, and three more go past. And the assumption always is, don't bother Pearl. Well, I'm standing next to Pearl. This goes on for exactly three weeks. And finally, at the end of the third week, we're beginning to work out what they call later in novels a relationship. <laughs> Up to that point, there have been no relationship. Hey, Esther Jane, you want to go to the dance? Is this a relationship? <laughs> well, we began to work out this reciprocal thing between the two of us, you see, where this one hour out of the day in Biology 3... I was no coward. And in Biology 3, she was Margot Fontaine. How it worked out, I don't know. I talked differently. I'd say, uh, hello, Pearl. Stand. My pencil. You know. And all the while, Josway is up there saying, hey, champagne! Hello, Alex. Back to the frog. We'd work this thing out. And that Friday night, I said, Pearl, would you like to uh, 
um, you want me to sharpen your pencil? And she said, yes. I said, all right. <laughs> Something is sacred even about the girl's pencil. You know, you carry it, this little yellow, perfectly clean pencil. Everything about girls so clean, you know, you take it up there and you go, tee, tee. My old pencils, you know, like, I bust them all the way down, you know, all the way down to a nub. And I come back and I write her little pencil sharp, you know, and I bring it back. So here it is. Thank you. I sensed in the air something. I was getting a signal. You know the signal, fellas? And I didn't know what to do about it. It's like a guy who's hearing code on a pair of earphones and he can't read code. And you know they're calling you. <laughs> they're calling you, you know, and you hear it. It's going on the cans. And I, and I don't know how to say it. I don't know whether women know this, how fantastically difficult it is to say, just say, do you want to go out with me? You can't even get it out. And so I'm standing there trying to figure it out, and I say, yeah, Pearl, um, <laughs> it's a nice day, isn't it? Yes. She says, yes. And hanging on the end of the yes are little tassels. <laughs> And there's little pieces of, just little pieces of sparkly glass on it, maybe diamonds. You know the kind of thing, you remember those, those Walt Disney cartoons when, when Snow White or the Good Fairy would come out with the little wand and go, ting. That yes hung in the air. She was not even talking about the sky and the wind and the rain and the rotten blast furnace dust that was coming down through the window. She says, yes. Yes. <clears throat> I go back to my end of the desk and now I am really scared. When you get the yes, what do you do now? What do you do? What would you do if right now the phone rang and it's Daryl Zanuck on the line? He says, we've been watching you. When can you get to the coast? All these years you've been saying, ah, if I was going to make a movie, I know what I'd do. I know what I'd do. Now Zanuck is saying, come. What would you do if tomorrow or the next week or the week after this senator gets up and you're listening on the radio to the convention and he says, and I want to place in the nomination the name of a great citizen unsung in this nation and yet one of the great citizens of this republic, I would like and I am honored to place in nomination the name. And you're sitting there expecting Eric Goldwater. I would like to place in nomination the name of that great citizen of the Empire State, the Empire State of New York. And you say, oh, Rockefeller. A man who is known to his friends and his associates as a man beyond all ordinary fairness. A friend of the working man. In fact, he himself is a working man. A friend of the unions. He belongs to four. A friend of capital. He has $37 in the First National Trust Bank on Second Avenue. And you begin to... What? What? That ain't Rockefeller. Who's he talking about? 
a man who probably is unsuspecting at this moment of the honor about to be followed by police and nomination, the name of a great American and the next president of the United States, Charlie W. Schmidlap. <laughs> and you're Charlie. What would you do? Would you go? Well, I am getting the yes. Pearl has said yes. Well, what would you do if you were Charlie Schmidlap? Call up San Francisco, try to get the convention hall on the line, reverse the charges? What would you do? And so I walked past her and I said, Pearl, she lived in the Ricks section of town. All of the most beautiful girls I have found, girls, and I hate to tell you this, are rich. There is no such thing as a poor Audrey Hepburn. I'm sorry, girls. That's just the way life is. F. Scott Fitzgerald once said, the rich are different from you and I. And Hemingway said, yeah, they got money. <laughs> and that's why Hemingway will never last like Fitzgerald. He knew something that Hemingway did not want to admit because he liked to relate it with the bank account. There's a certain flaring of the nostril. How can I put it? There's a certain curve of the eye. You know what I mean, man. Sure, you know. There's a kind of dull quality. Even when they're fat, they got it. And Pearl came from the north side of town. I came from the place, believe me, every time that they tapped an open heart, the temperature of the house went up 20 degrees. Every time that Bessemer converter would go off, my bedroom would light up like a Christmas tree. Yeah, it was that close. I'm serious. And when the 14-inch merchant mill was running full blast, it was all night long. Boom! Boom! You know, you just knew that they were running a big lot through that mill. That was all. You know, I lived in that world. And Pearl lived where the streets were made out of asphalt. The better to make that hiss when those big Buick centuries are coming home from the office. You know, with the tires, that's... She lived where there were trees around the houses. And I mean trees, you know, big trees that just hung there. And she lived on the end of town where every house was set at least a half block back off of the, you know, off the street. And you'd see these snowball bushes out in front of the houses. And screen doors. And maids. Do you know what a maid means to a, to a place like Hammond, Indiana? Seriously? You'd see these ladies, you know, out there dusting things with little white caps. And I used to, once in a great while, when they would put me on another paper route, I would deliver down Beacon Street which was that street. And Pearl came from Beacon Street. All I knew, it was the place... Can you imagine a place that gets three Chicago Tribunes? A house that has three New York Times delivered to it every morning? What do they do with them? You know, and you can imagine people being served them in bed, you know, in different parts of the house, different wings, you know, and I'd, I'd throw five of them on the porch and I'd get on my bike and I'd go off and look back. Pearl lived on Beacon Street. And I knew it. So I'm standing next to her trying to figure out what you do. And I said, 
pearl. It's Friday. Yes. It's Friday. <clears throat> it is Friday. Pearl, uh, <laughs> at the Orpheum, and she said, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. I said, yeah, <clears throat> yeah. And she said, I would love to go. I said, you would? She says, yes. I said, what time? And she said, after dinner. Dinner. We had supper at our house. <laughs> they had dinner. Oh, what a world of difference. I says, dinner, dinner, dinner. Yes, after dinner. And that, of course, means 6.30 to me. She says, about 8.30. 8.30. My mother, I had to be home at 9.30. I'm picking her up at 8.30. I says, oh, uh, yes. 8.30. Where will I meet you? And she says, well, come to the house come to the house. I wanted to meet by the popcorn machine <laughs> at 8.30. I'm going to have a big bag of popcorn in my head, you know, ready to go. And now i got to go to the house. Do any of you women know what this means? I'm serious. When you live in a world where two years ago you got a new sport car, and it was electric blue with the padding that went out to here, and that's the best thing you got you got one pair of slacks, one pair, and you hope to God that they're clean. you got one necktie. This is the necktie that my Aunt Min gave me for eighth grade graduation. I was totally a non-necktie type. And this necktie is silver, and it's about that wide. It looks like it's made out of tinfoil, and it had a snail on it. It had a red-painted snail. And, you know, at the time I got it, I thought it was so fantastic, a silver tie, you know, and a light blue, electric blue coat. What a great combination, you know, with the big collars that come down, had long collars with the buttons and everything. And she says, come to the house. Well, I go home and I start to sweat. I'm sitting at supper. My kid brother is over here. My old man is here talking about the White Sox. My mother is up there, you know, with the pots and giving us more stuff, and I'm eating the red cabbage. And, the, you know, she's cooking the hamburgers, and the ketchup is all out there, and I'm sitting there. All of a sudden, my house looked rotten, you know. Just looked rotten. Look at the old man sitting there in his underwear. What is it? <laughs> oh, and my, my kid brother's got a mouthful of hamburger, you know, eating and slobbering all over. My mother says, anyone for more red cabbage? She's standing up there with her bathrobe and her springs in the hair, you know, with the rheostats. And I'm, you know, I'm looking around. Speaking of, speaking of old rotten bathrobes, this is WORAM at FM New York, your friendly John Gambling Station. We're specialists in the news and Westport school announcements. And I'm sitting there, you know, and it's terrible, you know, when a kid begins to reject his home. 
And I loved it there. You know, I loved it. I used to come up the back steps. Oh, it's for supper, Ma. Oh, wowie, red cabbage. You know, eat the red cabbage. You know, and I'd mix it with the... Nothing was greater to me up to that moment than mixing about five great big gobs of red cabbage with white mashed potatoes. You mix it up. You know, ah, you know, it's purple and red and it tasted so great, you know. It was great. You know, pour ketchup on it and eat it down, you know. Hey, some more bread, ma, and you eat it in the drink, the milk, the quart. <laughs> you know, it's a natural man. It's a noble savage. You know, it's, it's a slob at work. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm eating and drinking. And now I'm sitting there with my fork. You know, I've got my fork and my cabbage is over here. And my old man is sitting there and he's reading the sport page. All of his life he read the sport page at supper. He'd sit there and he'd say, Detroit! Oh, why Detroit? There'd be a pause. That was a clue for my mother to say, what happened? <laughs> Eldon Hawker! Why Detroit? That bum shot out the socks. I'd sit there. Then my kid brother would say, Ma, I want to get up. I'm tired. I want to get out. I want to go out. And she'd say, shut up and finish eating. She'd say, Jeannie, any more hamburger? Yeah, give me the hamburger. That was supper in the Midwest. This night, something had changed. It's Friday night. I didn't know how to say to my mother, Mother, I'm going out tonight, and I won't be back until maybe 9.45. (laughs) It was strictly a 9.30 house. My kid brother, 8.30. He was a year and a half younger. You know, rank has its privilege. 9.30, 9.30, I'd come reeling in from a tough game of kick the can, you know, sweating, mosquitoes all over me. You know. I'd smoke the thing in the back of the back of the garage, you know, and I'm hiding it with the gum, and I'm coming in. That was typical at 9.30. I'd get in, you know, and she'd say, my mother would say, it's 9.40. Your father doesn't like it. I'd say, yeah, I know, Mama. Okay. Fateful Friday night, and I'm sitting there. I said, Mom... I've got a date tonight. And she said, Esther Jane is a nice girl. Because my mother liked little fat girls, you know, <laughs> that would come in, you know, and talk about cakes and stuff and that kind of stuff. She said, Esther Jane's a nice girl. She said, you bring her home. Mrs. Esther Jane Alberry likes her kid. I said, no, I'm going out with Pearl. Pearl? Because every kid in the neighborhood was totally known and cataloged. Every kid. There was Dawn... There was Pearl, there was Christine. Every last kid, she says, Pearl? I said, yeah, she lives uh, in the next neighborhood, out of the next block. She says, where does she live? And the old man puts down his paper. He's interested, you know, the kid's got a chick. So puts down the paper. My kid brother just keeps shoveling, you know. <laughs> you know it doesn't matter to him. See? And, and, and I said, well, she, she lives over across Kennedy. Oh, Cross Kennedy, you know, just in all neighborhoods, you know, the, between the rich neighborhood and the poor neighborhood, there's always little islands of, you know, that go in. You see, little, like, I says, Cross Kennedy, she says, well, where? Where does she live? And I said, uh, oh, I, I don't know. I, I don't remember. I, I... And the old man puts the paper down, and he is thinking of the other neighborhood. There was another neighborhood where they had funny lights in the window. <laughs> And the old man puts the paper down. He says, where does she live? Eldon Auker is gone now, you know. 
It ain't Detroit. It's the kid, you know, and he begins to see this cake of yeast growing next to him. He's worse you live. It's on Beacon Street. It was like suddenly eight floodlights had gone on in the room. My father said, Beacon Street. My mother puts the pan down. She said, where? I said, Beacon Street, Mom. Where does she live on Beacon Street? You see, on Beacon Street, like all rich streets, there was a kind of rich end, and then there was the rich, rich end. The rich, rich end. And I said, well, she lives down by Morton Street. Morton Street and Beacon Street met at Parnassus. They went right to Olympus and met. And my mother knew there were only three houses at that corner, you know. And she says, Pearl who? I didn't even know, you see. I just knew the girl's last name. You know, kids don't know these things. And I said, Pearl Johnson. My old man turned and looked at me, and I thought, you know, I'd done something terrible. It was that funny thing in the air. His eyes were like this. He said, Johnson. I said, yeah, Pearl Johnson. I met her in biology. He says, you mean the Johnsons from Morton Street and Beacon? And I said, yeah. He said, Ann, that was my mother's name. He says, Ann, do you know where you can find my black tie? He's getting ready to dress me. <laughs> he can see that purple and white and silver tie. He says, do you know where you can get my... I said, Dad, what, what, what is it? He said, well, that's Mr. Johnson's daughter. I said, well, yeah. <laughs> I guess so. He said, you be very good. Be very good and don't... You just be good. I said, yeah, I'll be good. I said, I got to pick her up at 8.30. He said, well, you'd be very good. And my mother said then, she said, Gene, that was my father's name. My name was Jeannie. She said, Gene, maybe tonight before he goes, you better tell him. <laughs> I'm scrunching down. What? You know, it's their tog. You know, kids always hear about, you know, it's what is it? And the old man looks at me and he says, don't worry. I think he knows. <laughs> and at 8.30, I go out. I'm wearing my father's shirt. And it's, it's by the way, it is summertime. And guys who work in offices in steel mills don't have Batiste shirts. <laughs> they have white, thick shirts made out of canvas. 
and I've got this shirt with the arrow collar, you know, with the special concrete in it. It's up under my ears, and already my neck is red. And I've got his black tie on, and he has tied it for over a half an hour. You know, uh, uh, he's going up like this, this way. I'm standing in there, and he is, for the first time, the absolute first time, he has showed me how to shave. I have never shaved up to this point. And of course, at that point, at 16, I had a thick black haze around me, you know, a nimbus. It always looked like sort of dirt and sweat and ketchup and everything. And he had scraped it off, and my face was like a, a tomato with the skin off, you know. I'm walking down the street, you know, and I've got, on, I've got on my pants. I couldn't wear his pants. I was bigger. All kids are bigger than their dads. I had my own pants on, and my mother had ironed them. That's all we could do. They were still hot. If you walked out with the, you know, my pants are hot, and I'm walking down the street, and it's hot. It's 90 already out, you know. The steel mill is cooking over here, and my shirt is sweating through. And I got my father's coat on, real narrow. I'm walking like this down the street. He says, you're not going to wear that damn blue thing. And he gave me his coat, the one with the red checks. I'm walking down the street like this. All the way across town, you know, kids don't think of taking cabs in 16, you don't take a cab, you know, sir. I walk over Kennedy, and I'm getting into this neighborhood that's dark. Rich neighborhoods are dark, by the way. Are you aware of that? It's the poor neighborhoods where every 30 feet they got a gigantic light hanging there, neon signs, it's all there, you know, streetcars going past. The further you get into Richville, the darker it gets, the higher the trees get. The more you smell the lilacs and the snowball bushes, and the scareder you get. I could smell these lilac bushes, and I could smell the stuff coming. I could smell it moving in, and I'm getting up there closer and closer. And I get down past 12th Street. I get down past Twyman Street. And Twyman Street, by the way, was where the superintendent of schools lived. I'm moving past that upwards on that sidewalk. Have you ever lived in a town that has catalpa trees? And the whole sidewalk is covered with catalpa pods. And you can smell those bushes. I'm walking along. It's getting headier and headier. And finally, there it is. Mr. Johnson's house. Pearl's home. And it's just a big, dark, sprawling blob up there with those trees around it. And I could see little lights. You know, it's funny, in, a, in, in poor people's houses, everything's clustered together, you know, the lights. <laughs> you see a light here, over there. You see a little light somewhere up in the sky. I mean, what is it, you know, what do they do, you know? You see the darkness, and I go up. I knock on the door, and the knock on the door, you know, what is it? They hit the things, oh, get up there, I knock. And this big man opens the door with a dark suit, and he says, oh, Mr. Shepherd." You're here for Pearl. I said, yes. I figure it's Mr. Johnson. You know, I, mean, you know, you know, I want to say, my dad heard of you, you know. He says, follow me. And he turns, and we go into this room. We go into the next room. We go into the next room. We turn right. We go into this next room. We turn left, and then we're in the room. And they're all sitting there all around a kind of fireplace that was turned off and they're drinking tall things, things, you know, 
with the white glasses, with the little stuff sticking out and the leaves and things. And there must have been 20 people sitting there. All of those ladies with the flaring nostrils. And large men sitting. And over in the corner with three other girls is Pearl. I said, hi, Pearl. And she says, oh, come in. Uh, everybody here, I'd like, you to, I'd like you to meet Gene Shepherd. Gene, this is Gene Shepard. Gene Shepard, this is Mr. Murphy, this is Mr. So-and-so, and all these names, and guys with jowls and white hair. You know? Nobody had white hair, and, and no poor people have white hair. It just sort of gets cruddy, you know? <laughs> These guys got white hair. He says, and he says to me, he says, are you one of the shepherds from Cleveland? You know, it's Cleveland Street I live on, see? He says, are you, are you the Youngstown Sheet and Tube? I said, yeah. He says, oh, very good. I knew your uncle. And we talk. <laughs> uncle Carl. I'm thinking of my drunken Uncle Carl. <laughs> Five minutes later, we are out on the driveway, and the car is picking us up. Ten minutes later, we are in the Orpheum. I'm sitting next to Pearl. We sat for one hour and 70 minutes while Fred Astaire danced on tops of pianos, <laughs> while Ginger Rogers looked out at us, and the music played, and I'm sitting. You know, when a kid takes a, another kid to the movie, he grabs her hand, you know? I'll tell you, I sat as far away as I could, and Pearl is sitting there, and about two-thirds of the way through the picture, she takes my hand. Pearl takes my hand. I'm sitting there, my hand is sweating, of course, you know. Sweating, and it feels like it's covered with chocolate, and I haven't blown my nose good, you know. I'm sitting there, and she's holding my hand. The movie ends, and she squeezes it. We get up, we're going through the Baby Ruth wrappers. We get out, and sitting in front of the movie house is the Buick. And all the other kids are getting out. I'm walking with Pearl. I am hypnotized. We get in the back seat of the Buick. We drive home. We get up in front of her house at Beacon Street, up the driveway. Pearl gets out and says, Charles, we'll take you home. I had a wonderful time. See, I saw I. I sit back in the darkness. He says, where do you live? I said, uh, you know where Cleveland Street is? <laughs> this guy lived on Cleveland Street. I could tell by the way his neck sat in the collar, you know. He says, yeah. Turns around. We go up and down. They even drive, you know. When a, sh when a chauffeur's got a poor guy in a car, he knows it. He puts his arm out the thing, you know, and he puts the hat down. He's, I am not starts yelling at another guy, ah, oh, shut up, and he stripped bone with the gears, you know, boom, away we go. We go up and down, over, over Kennedy, and finally we get in front of Cleveland Street. We're driving along, and all the kids are looking. Shep's in the back seat of the car. We get out, he says, where do you live? I said, 2907. He says, oh, yeah, okay, I know where it is. It's not my Falpel store, yeah, okay. We get up for that, whoop, he stops. He sits there, you know, he's not going to open the door for this slob. I open the door, I get out, and he says, okay, kid, night, boom, road. And that big Buick Century with that big fat old rear end takes off with those snotty red lights. 
Boom! He heads back for Beacon Street. I stand there. It's now 10.45. I am at least an hour late. I go up the steps and in the house. My shirt, my old man's shirt is just sweated through. It's just dripping. It's just hanging like a big rag. The tie is hanging down. My pants got bags. And I get in the front, walk right in, and they're sitting there. My mother and my father are sitting, and they're all dressed up. My dad has his new sports shirt on. My mother has a dress on. The radio is playing. I walk in. My kid brother's asleep. She has dusted the daybed. The, everything is lying there clean and nice. The curtains are hanging. My fielder's mitt has been picked up. I walk in, and my mother says, Did you have a good time, Jean? I am Jean. I said, yes, yeah. The old man says, did you meet Mr. Johnson? I said, yes, yes, yes. I met Mr. Phillips from Cleveland, too. My father said, you mean Phillips from Youngstown Sheet and Tube? These were legendary names. It's like meeting Mickey Mantle to my father. These were names that appeared, you know, on the financial page. I said, I met Mr. Phillips, too. Did you enjoy yourself? I said, yes. And I cut into the John. I get in there and I'm tearing off the shirt. And all of a sudden, the old man opens the door and he says, did you? I said, did I what? He said, I guess you didn't. Well, do you know from that night on, Pearl and I stood next to each other in biology class. It was an entirely different thing. She always said, please, now. She didn't have the spangles on the yes. She'd say, uh, would you pass the uh, green dye, please? Her nostril would flare. Pass the dye, please. And I'd say, yeah, <laughs> yes. And I'd give her the die. She'd say, uh, excuse me, do you have yesterday's assignment in your notebook? That cool, beautiful librarian, rich smile. I'd say, yeah, 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 yeah. And from that minute on, I can't tell you, I think you all know. From that minute on, I could no longer eat red cabbage. I could no longer mix it with the mashed potatoes. Ketchup was dead. And I used to come in, you know, and I'd look at my father. My father was kind of gray, you know, sort of, you know, dirty gray. And I used to look over at him and I'd, I, I wanted to say, Dad, why isn't your hair white? Or why don't you have things hanging down? My mother's up there in that big old bathrobe, you know, and she's standing there. How about some red cabbage? Gang, I'd say, I'll have another helping, please. And that was the day that changed my life. I wonder how many women sitting in this crowd right now are hearing the sounds 
of the pipes, blowing for eternal happiness, calling for the revolution, saying, Arise! And all the while, the man is sitting there in the crowd, listening to the sound of the pipes, hear them blowing. They're blowing out life. They're calling for the troops to come down from the hills. There is nothing more frightening nor more inspiring than the sound of a bagpipe being played five miles away by a group of angry Scotsmen coming into battle. The Campbells are coming. The traditional revolutionary sound coming down from the hills. Blow it, man. Blow it out your barracks bag. Are you aware that this is the very sound that the American Revolutionist soldiers heard coming from the Scottish soldiers at Concord? Listen to it. Exactly. Cutting like a knife. One of the angriest of instruments, the bagpipe. Pick up the beat. Here we go. We're listening to the sound of the pipes at the limelight, Sheridan Square in the village. The sound of the pipes. The sound of the revolutionists. The sound of the fighters. The sound of battle coming down.